This is 3 and 5 on SLC Management Podcast. Hi, this is Steve Peacher at SLC Management. This is our next episode of 3 and 5. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm with two of our most senior portfolio managers within SLC Management on the fixed income side. And we want to talk about the topic of the day, which is the stress in the banking sector. And it started... I guess, with Silicon Valley Bank. And there's been a lot in the press on it. Probably some people haven't been following it as closely as you guys have. So maybe for those who haven't been following it blow by blow, you could explain what happened and why is the situation with Silicon Valley Bank and also kind of the broader situation we're facing today with financials different from 2008. Thanks, Steve. So SBB, it's interesting. It, they essentially experienced a classic run on the bank. And, and unlike past runs, the depositors who, who withdrew other funds were actually mostly people from the technology field or companies in the technology field. So high net worth individuals or companies that decided to pull their money out. And it's interesting because it's, it, it's very different from how the crisis began in 2008 in the sense that that period revolved around asset quality, obviously subprime mortgages being the number one culprit, but other assets as well that where lending came under pressure. So asset deterioration was really the issue in, in 08 for, for banks in the banking sector. Today, it's more a matter of liquidity and, and then maybe a little bit of sprinkle in some asset liability management for SVB. So, you know, all banks borrow short and lend long. SVB is was a little different only in, in a couple of ways. One, they had a huge influx of deposits over the last couple of years. So their, their balance sheet ballooned by you know, almost three times as much as it had been back in 2018. And so they bought a lot of long maturity bonds with interest rates higher, the value of those bonds fell. And then there was a social media phenomenon, interestingly enough, that got the panic rolling and caused the liquidity crisis at SVB. Yeah, and I think the the only thing I, I might add, and Rich already touched on this, this is very much a liquidity issue and not a solvency issue. In in the banking crisis of 08, there was concerns that there were losses on the assets that the banks held. I think most concerning was it was unknown what those losses might be. So the market value went from par to I don't know. And if you don't know, then you immediately just assume the bank's going to have to have massive and unknown write downs. In this case, for Silicon Valley Bank and most of the other banks, the losses are very known. They're very transparent. We know with a high degree of certainty what the mark-to-market losses are on the securities, but there's no concerns about the ultimate value of those securities. For the most part, it's, it's mortgages and treasuries. It's a liquidity concern. And that, to Rich's point, I think, fed on itself and became more of a, a crisis of, I think, confidence in the banks, um, particularly in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, when that borrower type or that client type is highly concentrated in one sector that is also in itself having its own challenges with, with venture capital, I think, starting to struggle to raise capital. Um, that's where you think you see the confidence and, and the entire herd starting to shift away from a bank in terms of deposit base, but very different than what we saw in 08 because the asset quality side of things. The chain of events that was set off by the collapse of SVB or Silicon Valley Bank has led to a lot of volatility in the markets, it's led to a lot of questions, a lot of movement, you know, spreads have changed, risk-free rates have moved a lot. I mean, there's questions about knock-on effects in the financial sector and across the economy, what the Fed will do. As you face all those questions, what have you been doing in client portfolios in response to all this market activity in the wake of SVB? Right. So for us, there's there's short-term impact and there's a longer-term impact. So in the short run, what we have tended to do is focus on the sector where that is most under pressure. And in this case, it's the banking sector. And that, in fact, is the riskiest in terms of short-term volatility and the potential for surprises, as we've seen with a number of other banks, both in the US and Europe, since since SVB's collapse. And so 
what we've done so far and what we what we tend to do in these periods is you're going to see a lot of volatility from day to day. Some days are euphoric and others others terrible. And those euphoric days, we've tended to trim positions within the sector, right? So in the banking sector, just get positions down a little bit just in case our research on any particular name isn't correct and the bank comes under pressure. So far, so good that that hasn't happened to us. But trimming risk in the sector is, is probably the number one sort of short-term strategy. And then and then in the longer run, we we can be patient, lean back on our on our fundamental analysis, have our analysts grind away and and find the opportunities. And then when fundamentals look good versus the current price of debt, we can make a move and start to buy bonds that look interesting. Say for our clients, the other thing that we've started to do a little bit of is to the extent that we had cash in the portfolios in excess of a 250000 FDIC insured limit, we'd look to put a lot of that cash in T-bill ladders. A lot of our, our clients want us to hold cash as, as protection against you know potential claims payments they might have to make. Whereas before, I'd say we were, we were more comfortable holding that just in cash or in custodial sweep accounts. We've, we've now looked to ladder some of that cash out as a way of protecting into some of those bank run issues. All other things equal, and if during a financial crisis, you would expect the Fed to be cutting rates. But all of the things, I suppose, aren't equal today because the Fed's been aggressively trying to attack inflation, which has been running at high levels now for well over a year. What does that mean? This is a real curveball to the Fed. What does it mean for what they do from here? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Stephen, one that the market's really grappling with. I think the Fed, and I think Chairman Powell's been pretty clear about this, is really trying to distance its job as providing liquidity to the market versus achieving on its dual mandate, which is achieving price stability and full employment. And so I'd say from a, a liquidity standpoint, they're very quick to come out with the borrowing facility that allows banks to pledge collateral at par, not market value, which is a huge difference in this particular environment, to access virtually unlimited amounts of liquidity. So I think they, they really want to provide the support that they might normally provide through cutting rates via that liquidity facility. And what that is setting themselves up for is therefore to be able to continue along their path of hiking rates. Because again, if you were to just look at macro data, they very much justify continuing to hike rates. I mean, we still have inflation well in excess of their 2% target. We still have a labor market that's running very hot with the, the unemployment rate well below their, their long-term target. So I think this allows the Fed to, to continue to hike rates. I think one of the interesting knock-on effects, if you will, is that the likely impact on the banking sector is going to be one of much tighter financial conditions. By that, I just mean if you're running a bank of any size, really, I'd say your propensity to, to loan out to a marginal borrower is significantly reduced today versus where it was, say, two weeks ago at this time. That impact of tighter financial conditions has been estimated to be equivalent to anywhere from 25 to 50 basis points of incremental Fed tightening activity. So whereas we've seen the expected terminal rate for Fed funds fall by about 75 basis points, just on Fed fund futures market basis, this impact of tighter financial conditions gets you almost all the way back there. So I think the Fed will still feel that they have an obligation to continue to hike rates, just, just possibly not as much at this point because they're achieving tighter financial conditions through this, this challenging environment for the bank. I mean, I'd add that you could make the case that the Fed so far has you know, only mildly successful at reducing inflation, which is obviously their their ultimate goal. And this, strangely, this this crisis could be the finally the thing that may have, makes their policy start to work. Obviously, at quite a cost. And you know, this is sort of riffing off what Peter said, where once lending standards tighten and credit creation starts to wither, you know, that's when the economy can slow down and it might Fed might finally achieve its goals. You know, in a market like this, investors sitting in seats like yours have to absorb two things. One, they have to absorb a lot of new information 
and a lot of new changing information. And so my question is, do you think that so far the markets are reacting appropriately? And are you seeing any opportunities that are developing in the markets because of the events of the last week? I think the market initially did a pretty good job in terms of stuffing out where the, the weak points are. So I think they were very quick to identify what some of the issues were with Silicon Valley Bank and then take some of the equity valuations of some of those other small banks that had similar issues, that being high percentage of their deposit base that was uninsured, and then high percentage of the portfolio with held the maturity mark-to-market losses and, and really rapidly took those equity values down quite a bit. I think there was also some overreaction that, that led to some of the valuations of the general banking sector being being taken down, even though I think a lot of those business models still remain very much intact and, and very protected from this, this issue. And then I'd say more broadly, I think the market is going to move to a space where they're going to start to look at the impact that the withdrawal of the small banking space has on the broader economy. What I mean by that is if you look at the lending that small banks do versus large banks, in a lot of spaces, it's about 50-50. And by small banks, I mean banks with less than $250 billion in assets. If you look at like consumer loans or CNI loans, it's about 50-50 in terms of their split versus larger banks. In the commercial real estate space, there are about 80% of the loans that are done in the U.S compared to 20% for larger banks. So that's an area where I think the market will start to shift to looking at what impact this will have longer term to the extent that you have 80% of the market pulling back from, from the commercial real estate space. And I don't think the market's quite done that yet, but I think that's probably where they're headed. I'd add two things. One on the, the topic of credit market dynamics. And what we've seen so far is a relatively, you know, relatively order, orderly sell-off in credit spreads day-to-day, investors can still buy and sell bonds pretty readily. But often in periods like this, you'll, you'll see a spike in, in in liquidity or the port where liquidity just essentially disappears. And then coinciding with that will be a, a significant widening in, widening in credit spreads like over the course of a few days or a week, followed by a, by a spike back down. And so far, we haven't seen that. And maybe we won't. We'd say if there's more to come in, in the banking sector, that you, it wouldn't be the least bit surprising to see one of those moments where more credit spreads spike pretty aggressively. But so far, so good. The other thing is, with just mentioning in passing, this, this uh, Credit Suisse event and and the impact on their capital securities called AT1s or interestingly COCOs. The fact that the equity holders of Credit Suisse got got some money, but the that these COCOs or or capital securities got were valued at zero in the transaction with UBS is interesting, and it's had that's had a really negative impact on the entire market for perpetuals or or COCO securities in Europe. Let me end by putting you guys on the spot on something. We're recording this on Monday, March 20th. So you referred to Credit Suisse. We got the news over the weekend about the deal with UBS and and Credit Suisse. Today, markets are reacting positively to that. Do you think all these moves over the last week, SVB with Credit Suisse, with Signature Bank, the liquidity line from the Fed, from Swiss National Bank, do you think that in the financial sector, this is now going to be successful in calming things down? Or do you think we're in the early innings of this? And I'm thinking just about the financial sector. Peter, I'll put you on the spot first. I think that as of today, I don't think there's going to be a lot to hear of it. I, I will say that I think it seems like the banking sector is trying to coalesce around support for First Republic. First Republic Bank is, I think, the, the next weakest link in the chain that's really been taken to the woodshed from an equity valuation standpoint. You know, we saw last week that a consortium of banks got together to agree to deposit $30 billion with them, which didn't really help as much. Today, there's news that Jamie Dimon is leading an effort to, to possibly convert that into capital for, for First Republic. So I think there's a large concerted effort by some very powerful players with deep pockets to firewall this issue and really have First Republic be the line in the sand. So 
I, I think that we're going to be able to see them hold that line and that it won't continue to spread from here. But I think that process still needs a couple of headlines before it really starts to impact evaluation for First Republic. But I think that's that's really the canary in the coal mine that I'm watching. If they're able to be successful, I don't think it spreads from here. Yeah, I mean, I would say in the U.S. that we might very well have it pretty contained. There, there might be some other stories out there, but we would think that they're smaller capitalization, financial institutions, not as huge as SVB or Credit Suisse or some of these others. But it, but in Europe, given what's going on with the aforementioned Cocos and, and such, and, and that there's been a lot more weakness in banking there, might be other shoes to drop. But I think here in the U.S., for the most part, Certainly the money center banks are well capitalized and the regionals and super regionals here have a ton of liquidity and so fair amount of protection against this is the type of thing we saw with SVB. Well, it's definitely brought back memories of the weekends during the financial crisis where you're waiting all day Sunday to hear about the news on the latest financial institution. Let's hope it doesn't come close to the magnitude of, of that period. Rich Famletti, Peter Kramer, thank you very much for taking the time today to talk about this. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of 3 and 5. 